Welcome to the International Schools Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Taylor. And I'm your co-host, John Micton. Join us every two weeks for conversations with international school leaders, educators, and innovators who are working and engaging in the world of international school education. And finally, just to say a huge thanks to our valued partner, Faria Education Group. We'll jump back in later in the podcast to give you some more information about Faria Education Group. Hello and welcome to the International Schools Podcast. My name is John Micton. I'm one of the co-hosts with Dan Taylor, who's not with us, but will be with us next time. Uh, again, we're getting some great uh, share outs via social media. Seems people on LinkedIn, a lot of the things that we're saying resonates with them. So we appreciate your comments and feedback. It's always important for us to know how uh, we're doing. But more importantly, if the guests that we have resonate and some of the learnings and stories that they're sharing, we feel so privileged to have these guests. And it's so nice to hear that many of you really appreciate listening to their stories. So, uh, Today, I have the pleasure of what I consider a friend, but not only a colleague, uh, Dr. Patricia Angoy, who I had the pleasure of working with at the International School of Luxembourg. Patricia, since then, has moved on. She's working at the UWC at Waterford Kambala uh, as the principal, or in some cases, we would call head of school. And she has been engaged with this. She has a long history of leadership, in South America and many other schools and has been really uh, in the forefront of uh, amplifying the narrative of black women in leadership. And what's so interesting is that Patricia actually just finished her doctorate. So congratulations, Patricia. That's huge. I know how many hours that must take. And of course, with your family and everything, that's a huge sacrifice. Patricia, first of all, it's such a pleasure and honor to have you here today. And uh, congratulations on the doctorate. But more importantly, maybe you can just share with our listeners a bit about your story as an educator and where you come from and how you suddenly have ended up writing this thesis. <laughs> thank you so much, John. And thank you for the invitation It's uh, to this podcast series. I'm really very, very honored and a little nervous, I must admit. And now we'd like to say a few words from a valued partner and sponsor, Faria Education Group. Faria Education Group has been with you through thick and thin, helping international schools minimize headaches and easing transitions. Whether through paperless admissions with Open Apply, curriculum first learning with ManageBack, or school to home management with SchoolsBuddy, Faria has been your partner. What's more, Faria has been expanding with additional services, including professional development for international school educators. MiniPD is a professional learning platform by practitioners for practitioners, with a global community of learners and coaches. MiniPD makes the learning experience more personal, flexible, and equitable. Looking for a PD solution for your school or something for yourself? Sign up for individualized coaching and enjoy a 10% discount using the code ISPODCAST. Head over to app.minipd.com. That's app.minipd.com to book your personal learning coach today. MiniPD, embracing the learner in every educator. You know, just today I was sitting at my work table here in Luxembourg. I'm on holiday at the moment, updating my CV. And looking backwards at this professional life that I've had um, for over 40 years now, 
And, you know, looking at those pages, I realized all of us who write our CVs, we're so much more and our lives are so much bigger than those brief pages that, you know, we see in front of us. And we leave out all the important stuff, all the important things that make up your life, uh, your struggles, the great moments of pride that you have and the work that you've done collaboratively, the people that you've met, people like you that I've worked on, on some tough things together and some great fun things that have brought us great joy, yeah? Well, we had the pleasure, I don't know if it's the pleasure, but uh, during COVID, we worked very closely together as part of the COVID task force team. And so we got to spend maybe more hours than we anticipated together. But uh, yes, I, I do agree with you. Yeah. Yes. Sorry. I and you know, that was a, a, an example of how, you know, we are the, the result or the, the, the makeup, we, we are the makeup of all those collaborations that we've had. And yeah. um, often along the way, we've kind of forgotten just how important those are because other things, those other moments that are best left forgotten sometimes come back to haunt us. Yeah. And so I embarked um, on this doctoral degree at um, almost 60 years old because I wanted to find out what had I learned in all this time that I've worked in international education and in schools around the world and if they served any purpose what purpose did they serve for me for my future for the future of anybody else who may be black who may be a woman who may be in education and perhaps also in international leadership in education and my life has been spent in classrooms and schools that have been diverse in many many ways um, socio-economically diverse, linguistically diverse, definitely culturally diverse. Um, and with schools and students of a wide um, variety of nationalities, even sometimes within the same country, many of those with different ethnicities, different languages, I now work in Africa. So I work in a very monolingual country, one of the very few in the continent, but most countries are, are, are multilingual. And many countries in Africa have hundreds of languages, not just, you know, one or two. Absolutely. Um, and then there are different religious beliefs. And all of these are sort of the richness, I think, of, of human beings, of the, of the human um, nature of, of us. And, and it's important, I think, that rich tapestry that um, is present in our lives. But... One of the things that has struck me over my 40 years is that I didn't see myself represented in many of the schools that I either attended or worked in. And so, you know, for me, it was really important to highlight that in the work that I've just um, finished doing. And also to understand what values does it bring, what values are brought to the table um, when we can recognize ourselves in the people who surround us? Um, and leading in international schools as someone of color and a woman hasn't always been easy, but it's definitely been really important to me, very important. Um, education sometimes isn't thought of as political, but it is political work. 
Um, and it's the work, you know, if you talk about my trajectory, I started in the Black Women's Group in Haringey in the 1970s, um, working um, in North London, where I lived as a newly qualified um, teacher. And then in the 70s in the UK was a, a time of racial turmoil. Sometimes, you know, younger people think that this is the time of racial turmoil. Well, you know, there, there has been this war almost for many, many uh, decades and centuries, I would say. Well, in the seventies, especially in the UK, with the National Front, uh, exactly. the Black Against Racism movement, the uh, Notting Hill Gate, there was yes. a lot going on. Very, and the miners' strike—that was a really tumultuous times. It was, and and many things were happening at the same time around the world. The Ayatollah Khomeini had come in. The Shah of Iran had fallen. We had um, Gorbachev come in as the leader of um, the USSR. We had um, Ronald Reagan come in, um, great friend of, of Margaret Thatcher at the time. And so there was a lot of politicizing of young people at that time. And, and at that time in 1970s, I was one of those young people. Um, and so there was no way you could be out on the fringes. You were either in or you were for, or you were against, or you had to make a stand. Um, Do you think, Patricia, that idea of the political narrative and political engagement as an educator is something that's far more present in public schools? When I talk about public schools, state-funded schools, because of course our audience, uh, public schools can be also mean a boarding school in, in the UK context, but definitely. in North America, public school is a state-funded school. I mean, there's a lot of work in Brazil with Ferrero. I mean, they're just... Do you think it's more teachers that are ingrained in those more diverse and more intense socioeconomic uh, school systems that are more political than, say, in international schools where maybe we tend to be more neutral? I think sometimes what happens is that we, we have our, it's more difficult to live your political life within an, somebody else's country. And... Um, so I think, you know, I, I started in state schools, uh, a public school, as you would call them. Um, for us, it was a state school uh, a very in a very difficult um, environment. Uh, my head teacher used to have to accompany me to the bus stop um, so that I wouldn't get beaten up on my way home. Um, and I was dropped off at the school gates um, on my way to school in the morning by my, at that time, white boyfriend. So... It was, a, it was an interesting time, but I felt that I could and should and must take part in everything that was happening in the society in which I lived. As an international educator in a country that's not your own, it's not that easy. I don't think it's a cop-out for, for, for us, but I don't think it's as easy to, to be fully engaged in the political life of the country. Um, for many, many reasons. Um, sometimes, you know, you can't because your contract tells you you can't. Exactly. Sometimes it's because it's very um, dangerous for you to do so. Other times it is because um, you may not feel that you have the right to do so. Um, and, you know, it depends where you are. I, I worked in Chile for a long time, which you know, in the 80s during the dictatorship and then um, post uh, into the 90s in um, 
the return to democracy. And I definitely uh, lived a double life there. I lived a life as a teacher at, at a school. Um, people did not know where I lived. And I lived the life of, a, of the wife of a very prominent journalist at the time, um, who was very much on the streets, the barricades, you know, um, the protests, the hiding, the danger, um, the fear. And those two lives were lived completely separately. Um, and how did, so that was a conscious decision that you made. You were working in uh, a non-public school, so in an international school. I was working in an international school, yeah, yeah. International school, and then your husband partner was very much involved in the political uh, narrative. And as you said, in Chile, that was at the end of Pinochet's uh, term, and there was a lot of upheaval. So you was that a conscious decision to separate both out of more to protect you and your family or to make those two separate things because they were really separate? Yes, both. I think to protect my job, I needed a job. I was the breadwinner of the family. And I also wanted to be able to contribute to that return to democracy. I felt it was my my duty um, to my partner and the people that I believed in. But I also wanted to be able to understand, and this is where the, the idea of diversity for me comes in. I wanted to be able to understand the other, the people who, in a way I was fighting against, but whose children I was teaching. Um, Oh, interesting. And if they could understand that I was, you know, flesh and blood, just like you and you and everybody else, but thought differently, um, believed in a different future, but also I had, um, I could also influence uh, the those children, um, not not in a, a very um, uh, direct way or, or not intentionally. But just to say, I exist. Other people exist. Um, just, just look. Just, just look around you, and and you make your own decisions in the end. Um, so you were really. Re it sounds like what I'm hearing is you wanted them to have an awareness and at least be uh, alive and awake enough to notice that there were those differences. You weren't going to tell them how to manage them, but you wanted them to be aware of them, and by that awareness, then construct their own understanding. Definitely. And, you know, for, for many of them, at the time in Chile, um, in the 1980s, there were very few black people in, the, in, in Santiago and very few black professionals in internet. Well, actually, I was the only one. I was the only one. Um, and so for them, it was intriguing to have their teacher and then their, you know, head of year and then their head of school be a black woman um, who was not North American, by the way. So, you know, this whole idea that all black people are either from Brazil or, or Afro-American in Latin America at the time, yeah, 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 you know, yeah, yeah. It, it was, was the narrative. But I was somebody different. So, and, and I could understand Shakespeare. I could teach Shakespeare. I could teach Chilean poetry as well. <laughs> so it was, um, you know, in a way, a curiosity, but not in a, a, a morbid sense, uh, just an, a, an idea of, okay, so there she is. Um, 
she speaks our language and um, she's actually got something to say and she supports us. And so that, that, was a, that was a very interesting time in my life anyway. And at the same time, I also worked, um, I had just done my, my master's degree at uh, the University of Warwick and became their representative in Chile for students going to university in the UK. Okay. So I worked part-time at the University of Chile in the pedagogical department. So that was another time for me and the beginning of a time of looking at, um, I don't know if you know Curtis Mayfield and a New yes. World Order. Yes. Well, it was that sort of time in the 90s where yeah. there was this whole idea that there were, we could create a new world. You yeah. know, there, there was something, on, we were on the brink of something interesting. Maybe it was because this new century was coming, you know, we sort of saw the, the, the turn of the century coming towards us and, it was a, a, a wonderful time in my professional career in international education. I learned a lot. I was with a lot of people. I was involved in uh, a lot of academic work, um, uh, curriculum work, uh, pr um, professional development for in-service teachers. So it was, um, it was a rich time of learning for me. Um, and so, Patricia, you know, when we're going to come back to this this role that you had of, you know, a teacher and then a head of department, and then a head of school, and then that has replicated itself in other schools. But what you why that suddenly, you know, most people at sixty don't decide to start a doctorate. So, <laughs> what was it that you know really drove you? You must have had something. You're like, okay, I really need to engage with this. Was there a spark, or was there an event? Or was there some reflection that really kind of had you decide, okay, I'm going to make this huge academic commitment to doing this doctorate? It was more, John, a, a sort of questioning of myself as I was coming to the end of my working life in, in education. I wanted to find out what I'd learned. You know, as, as teachers, we're, we're also learners. Um, and I, so I thought I can't stop, just finish, you know, end my career without having reflected on it. Okay, it took six years, a lot of money, <laughs> and a lot of work, that Absolutely. sort of reflection. But it was really important for me to think back about what was the purpose? What is the purpose of what we do? Um, that, that was the kind of questioning. And what what brings somebody like me to work in an environment that I did not grow up in? I did not know about international schools when I was young, and yet had given me so much and taught me so much uh, about who I am, actually. And also, of course, um, the craft, the art, the science of, of being a teacher and being a, um, in education as in leadership. And, you know, what's interesting is you highlight in your anecdote about in Chile, you were one of the few black women and very likely the only one in the context of your school is in that journey. Your your thesis is about black women's in leadership. It's, you know, if somebody listens to this saying, wow, that's been a really lonely journey. You know, you've been kind of alone, but I never get that sense knowing you that it's been, a, you know, you, you look at it as such through the learner's lenses. 
what what was that like you know having a family uh you have you know you have a daughter you 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 know you you took care of the family and you worked and then on top of that being a black woman as leader maybe a minority or maybe the only person in the school context what how did you you know keep that energy and that positivity mm. as you moved forward you know it 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 wasn't easy and it hasn't been easy and there have been a lot of sacrifices that you know, you make, but you don't think of them as, as such whilst it's happening. It's, it's later on um, as you look back. And, and I've had that chance through doing this doctorate. Um, you know, I have been blessed to, to have met some really important men and women in my life who've inspired me. Um, and it has been quite a lonely journey, although I've been surrounded always by lots of people. Um, young people, um, peers, um, and um, I think it's because of there. There have been some key elements, key moments in my life that um, have kind of changed things. One of them was uh, someone called Claudio Lucero. He went um, with the first Chilean expedition of um, to Everest that um, reached the summit. And he was with Rodan, um, um, supposed to have been the one who planted the flag, you know, and all of that. And as they got to the last base, he went down with pneumonia. And he could not, he, he had worked, he was in his 40s, was 45. He couldn't make that last um, ascent because if he had done that, Others might not have been able to um, go, and they would all the, the the whole thing would have failed. And I went on a course that he ran, and he said to all of us then, he said, you know, there are times when you work your whole life for something, and you get right to the moment where you're going to reach that, and 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 get there, and you have to hold back so that somebody in your team can do that. And for me, that was a, you know, you talk about watershed moments in your lives. That was one of the professional watershed moments in my life. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to go forward with this. But I know that there may be a time that I have to hold back so that somebody else can move forward so that we can all be in a better place in the future. And it's been a sort of mantra for me um, in my life that I've tried to look around and see who in my environment are people, black, white, male, female, gay, you know, bi, whatever, trans, who are around me that I can actually push forward, that I can, you know, encourage, cajole, um, make a space for so that we all myself included can move forward and that's been the sort of way in which i have managed through this it has been quite a lonely stretch in my life to have gone forward because there's always somebody around behind beside that can be with you you know yeah. in, in some way 
And and what I love about that is this idea of mentorship, where you know that giving that space, actually that amplification of giving the space maybe will be much larger than if you go ahead yourself. And yes. the humbleness that you are sharing is it's about, it's not about me, it's about the idea or the, the message or whatever it might be, the pedagogy. That's just, mm -hmm. yeah, so powerful. Patricia, so you talk about, you know, in your uh, thesis, it's about black women in leadership. Talk a bit about, uh, you know, are there a lot of black women in school leadership? And, and international schools was really what you were focusing on, correct me yes, if I'm right. Definitely. You know, I when I started, there were no other women that I could look to or turn to who looked like me or had a trajectory like mine. But I must say in the last, and it's, it's actually so recent, it's, it's been in the last five to 10 years that there has been a growth of women coming through who we have in some way touched each other's lives. And sometimes briefly, um, and sort of looked out for each other along the way. And one of the things that's really um, important, and I didn't realize how important it was, is, is all the sort of um, conferences and moments when people get together in international education. And, you know, you look around you and you think, gosh, who else is like me? Yeah. Um, in other contexts, you may look around you and say, who, who do I know here? And I often look for the people that I don't know. Um, and sit at their table or someone will come and sit at my table um you know in those breaks and and lunches and all of those times that you have together and those are the times that you can give each other a little bit of a pat on the back or a little bit of um encouragement um or sometimes it's you know watch out i'm not saying don't go down that path but go there with your eyes open um yeah. And that those moments have been very important to me. And I've seen more and more women in those, in those spaces. Um, and more and more women have set up um, websites. They've set up um, uh, link groups that you can join and be part of. Um, and, and that's very powerful. It's, it's social media technology has empowered us. Um, when, I, when I started, of course, um, there was the mimeograph machine <laughs> and the typewriter. That was it. Exactly. So far from social media. Maybe a, a little bad taste on your tongue from licking the stamp. <laughs> it didn't have enough glue. Yeah. yeah. You, you talk about in, in your journey that there were men and women that influenced you and you know and i assume generally they did not come from the same uh racial background or experience that you had but what is it about them that you think transcended that and they were like it was it the way they were engaging with you their understanding was it because it was about your skill set and your dispositions and your pedagogic leadership you know how did that work? What were those people that really kind of, you know, amplified you and you were like, wow. Well, you know, that most of them were people earlier on that I did not know and never met and have since died. They're people like outside of my, outside of the realm of education, 
And I talk a lot about that in the thesis. You know, people like Wangari Matai in Kenya, people like Toni Morrison, is hugely important to me. Um, people who, um, singers, writers, um, performers, people who you, you know, they weren't the, you know, the Ken Robinsons of the, of the time. Um, yes, I read all of those pedagogical books, but they weren't the people that rocked my boat. It were, they were other people who were doing other things that were brave and, and good and true and doing the things that I wanted to be able to do, um, but in education. And so as you were being influenced, and like you said, maybe, you know, you listened to a song or you read a poem that rocked your boat. And then so was that something like, OK, that energy now has given me fuel to go ahead and do what I believe in is right in the school context? Yes, definitely. And of course, the others of, of the students themselves. Yes, of course. You know, yeah. when, when students validate you and show you or tell you or indicate to you that you've actually made a difference in their lives, they push you to do the same or something similar for others. And the more that you do that, the more feedback that you get, the more you're able to do the, the, the good work that um, is there to be done. And that's one of the really important things you talked about mentorship is really important as a, a mentor. Your mentor could be a person younger than you are. I've had many mentors that have been younger than I. Um, but there are these people who you seek out in life that actually make you feel that you can do something that you may have thought you couldn't do. Um, and those are the people that you know, have been really influential in my life. I'll tell you a little anecdote. I used to work in one international school and I, I moved to another. And as I moved, I, I had this group of middle schoolers, yeah? You know, boys and girls who were into all kinds of things except English literature. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then I worked in this school and I got a, um, they came to see me. They said, oh, we've come to see you, Miss Patty. They used to call me Miss Patty. So they said, well, we were now in the IB and we want you to help, help us with the poetry section. And I said, but I'm not in the IB. He said, yeah, but you know, you were so good with us when we were younger. Surely you can help us. And these kids would come once a week all the way to my school. And we'd sit down there and I'd be working and they'd be working and, and they'd have their poetry out. And I thought, you know what? This is so empowering for us both both the students and for me. It wasn't a one-way thing, you know? Um, and those are the kinds of moments that if I had had a bad day that day, in, during the day, it ended up on a high. How could it not, you know? And I can agree with you. You know, I think that's one of the things we are so fortunate as educators. We have those moments with our students. And it transcends everything. You know, they say something or they write a little note or they catch you in the corridor. And it's so enriching. And, and it, it almost kind of negates anything else that was negative. And, and you can kind of move forward. And I, yeah. I, I so agree with you. Patricia, and there you was a lot. Sorry, there was a lot of negativity. You know, if I've had heads of school who've thrown things at me and, you know, um, 
said things like, you know, you know, I remember one head of school, um, I was saying, you know, I'm thinking of going back home. There's a, a position of a head of school in, in the International School of, of Guyana uh, in Georgetown. And he says, you can't do that. I said, why not? Why can't I apply? He said, because, you know, you're here and, and you're in this school. So you, you, you can't move anywhere else. And I said, you know, actually, you know what, sir? Um, slavery was abolished in 1934. Sorry, in 1834. So, you know what? I can do whatever I like. <laughs> exactly. exactly. And, you know, one thing which is interesting, and I think that anecdote uh, highlights that, is very likely there are many conversations you had 20, 30 uh, years ago that people very clearly brushed off. But I think today we're far much more aware, more mindful of the language and the, and the body language, the Me Too movement and all that. And I'm just wondering, as you reflect back, very likely if you shared some of anecdotes, people would be like, I can't believe they said that. But I think it was much more the norm, very likely that head felt that that was not inappropriate, that that was appropriate in the time and the context. And very likely, I'm curious, is have you noticed this, this change with time or is it still, we still have those attitudes? It's become more subtle. It's become a lot more subtle. Um, and, you know, not in the education context. I, I flew into where I am now on a, an aircraft that was on a Monday morning, mostly businessmen. And I'm sort of saying, excuse me, excuse me. And, you know, the person in front of me just could not give, you know, they, they just were not interested. It's as though I were invisible. Yeah. 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 And everybody else was kind of doing their own thing. And then in the end, I said, if you don't move, this thing is going to hit you on the head because it was one of those low planes with the overhead compartment. And I was just trying to protect the young man. Um, and he was just in his own, in you know, pushing aside and getting to where he wanted to go to without looking either side or behind of what was what was happening. And... It's always interesting for me as a, as a black woman to sit in an aircraft, which I often have to do, full of men and to just observe what's happening. No, no offense, John. No, but, Patricia. But I think it's the same thing. One man was in an aircraft full of black women. You know, there would be, be a, an interesting, um, you know, dynamic that you, yes. you feel there. So yeah. it's, it's about, and, and that's really quite important to feel because in our international schools where we have students of all over the world, there will be one child or one young person there who's coming from a context completely different from the environment of the school, maybe new the first day, whatever. Putting yourself in the shoe of that young person it's exactly the same as me in the aircraft, you know, full of other people who, you know, don't even see me, let alone, you know, acknowledge that I'm there.
And you talked about that early on, this idea of developing an awareness, an empathy, a kind of a giving maybe our students the lenses that allows them to think, oh, okay, let me flip this classroom or let me flip this situation and have a completely different context and look through that lens. And I think mm -hmm. that's something that you highlighted. And I think that's something that we really have a responsibility, whatever your background is, because we want people to be mindful and open and empathetic and, and have the capacity to discipline themselves to look through these different lenses. Because I think when you look through these lenses, you start seeing things differently. And by seeing things differently, you learn differently. And I think mm -hmm. that's something that is so important. One thing I can imagine uh, being a school leader, a parent and a mother and a wife, you know, balancing, how, how balancing all that, because that is a lot going on. And then your own journey as a black woman at, in leadership in international schools. Talk a bit about how you juggled all that. And, you know, mm -hmm. you kind of found your own space and your own mindfulness time so you could focus on you while taking care of your family. Mm. You know, I, I'm not sure how well I have balanced all of that, um, you know, in, in looking back. Um, I did try my best. Um, and I guess my daughter always says, but mommy, you did it because you thought it was the best thing to do at the time. And you have to kind of forgive yourself because there were definitely times when my job was much more important or, or took on a, a greater importance in um, the hours that I spent on, on the job than the family. And um, I, I, what I would say to, and I, you know, I, I'm not here to advise anybody, but it is important to find yourself in in all that you do, be you black, white, male, or female, uh, or, or whatever uh, you identify as, because in the end, you have to live with yourself, yeah. and so um, you have to live with your mistakes. You have to live with the times that you chose to stay longer at school when perhaps you should have gone home. Um, the times when, you know, the birthday parties, the graduation, I miss my daughter's own graduation. Can you believe that? Um, you know, I, I, I always say it because I feel so guilty about it um, because I had just started a new job and I felt that I didn't, I couldn't ask for time off. You know, even as a principal in the school, I felt that I shouldn't, you know, that was more important. Not that it was more important, but that that's where my duty lay. Yeah. Um, so there, there are huge sacrifices that I think I have made that I hope others don't in the future, because it's actually not worth it. Some of those, some of the big things, I think you have to sort of weigh up what's important to you in your life. And some things, would I regret not having done this or having done this 10 years from now, 20 years from now. And if you would, well, then make another choice, yeah. I would say. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's an interesting filter to use. And I think, you know, as school leaders, so often we get and, you know, you get sucked in to the business of the day and it all becomes so important and consuming that sometimes it's hard to have that perspective like oh i need to step out and yeah. and i know we on the COVID task force team spent many late nights that we should have gone home yes. and we were all busy uh yeah so i absolutely agree. 
you talk about finding yourself or understanding yourself. And I think that's really important. And I think there's more and more literature about that as leaders is to give yourself the space and the time to focus on you. Talk a bit about how maybe you navigate that. Because uh, yeah. you, of course, now are a, a head of school. You're in Africa. I know you. You know there's been some political unrest in your context. Just, but how are you finding that time where you can focus on Patricia and make sure that that still is important more than the other things? You know, I've I've tried to be much more mindful of my time. So. You know, I'm an early riser, so I get to school before everybody else does. And I have that moment to sort of prepare my day. And there's always a time in the evening when I think, okay, I'm going home. I love to cook. I put the music on as loud as I can. <laughs> I dance in the kitchen <laughs> to all the you know, the music, soul music, rap music. I get all kinds of music from the young people that I work with. And I I'll always ask them, you know, what's the latest? What should I be listening to um, now? And I do try and completely sort of shut myself away from my work and turn myself towards me. And I have done that um, consistently now for the last probably couple of years um, since I, I left my, my last school. And, um, and I think it has, has meant that I can make better decisions. I am more measured. I take more time sometimes to do the things that I feel I need to do. I talk to more people before I, I, I make a decision. And one of the things I always say to to my, you know, the people I work with is that all the things that go well, great, you all have done it. Anything that goes bad, I take the responsibility and, and try and learn from that. Um, yes. and, and I do have these very, these times that are just me, you know, I, I, I don't talk to anybody. I'm not on the phone. It, it's just me doing what I like. Do you feel that you had to develop that discipline? Is that something that you consciously said, I really need to di be disciplined? A bit like, you know, people go on exercise bikes or whatever it might be. Was that yeah. kind of conscious discipline and you had to practice it? Yeah, definitely. You know, I was reaching, I think, a burnout um, in the last few years of, of, of um, before I kind of semi-retired. Um, and I think it was that I had been pushing myself a lot. I'd been doing this doctorate. I'd been, you know, running a school. There was COVID. All kinds of things were changing. I was coming up to 65, you know, the bells were ringing. <laughs> you know, you're thinking economically, how am I going to, you know, manage for the next years uh, of my life? And so I sort of began to... to live a little bit more for me and you know in hindsight i wish i'd done that a little earlier um because i think i would have been a a, a better professional um and i've been able to juggle things a little bit better than i have not that i was you know this crazy lady that you know moving around that it, it that wasn't it it was more sort of internal peace that i i i found 
And I think that's so important is this idea of the internal peace. And I think there's something and that I'm also in the 60 bracket. I feel that as you age, that that internal peace becomes so much more important. And you also are far more disciplined to work with it than when I think when I was 30 and, you know, eager and, and, you know, wanting to be involved in everything. So I think there's that kind of recalibration. One thing, uh, you've been in many different schools and you've had many different leadership positions. When you come into the dynamic of recruiting and interviewing, how often has your, oh, you're a black leader come up or has that never really been something and you've just been engaged as your experience having been a principal or a head of school, another school and leveraging that experience as a way to amplify your capacity for the new position? It's always come up. It's always come up. It's always been, um, you know, I, I've tried always to put myself forward as, as the professional that I am. Um, but somewhere in the, my recruiting of me, people who've recruited me, or um, the, when I recruit, you know, I've, I've been to some of these big, what used to be these big recruiting fairs where you'd have thousands of people in a hotel. Yeah. Um, the last one was in London and I, you know, in, in January 2020, can you imagine thousands of people in a hotel just before COVID broke, you know, six weeks later in, around uh, the rest of the world? Um, and, you know, th those kinds of questions come um, to me. But it's also been interesting to see how people have been drawn to this person who sits at the other side of the table. Um, and so you get some interesting conversations that have uh, ensued and perhaps um, it's allowed certain groups of teachers who I found extraordinarily interesting and, and, and different perhaps to enter into conversations and then sometimes recruit them um, if possible. And even if I haven't, I've, I've had lots of interesting conversations. I love recruiting, by the way. <laughs> Lots of interesting conversations with people because people are so interesting. I mean, yeah. Everybody's interesting. Yeah, um, absolutely. And that's why we do this podcast because there's so many amazing people. And I just feel, I love these conversations and I agree with you. They're just so interesting. And, and Patricia, so if, you, you know, there are many people that are listening to us that, you know, many educators look to leadership as another professional opportunity, maybe a growth, something that they really want to engage with. And there's been a lot of talk about women in leadership. There are a lot of organizations. Are there organizations supporting black women, Asian women, uh, kind of, you know, more focused on diversity of women leadership? You know, are there organizations or groups of people coming together to support that narrative and really provide resources or just a, a platform for people to share ideas and get some inspiration? Yes, there are. And, you know, COVID, um, during the COVID time when we were all online, people started um, getting together um, women who um, are First Nation women, women who um, are gay and in leadership, um, because they wanted safe spaces to, to, 
talk in, not necessarily about their their own personal situation, but just some spaces where they wouldn't be judged um, for who they are or, or what they are or the color they are or their you know their sexual orientation or or and I found those spaces so much so different from when I would join a another type of um, uh, group where we would be talking about um, leadership as well but I think we were a lot more honest sometimes uh, allowing ourselves to be a lot more vulnerable um, because we felt that we were in safe spaces um, and you know it it is a very vulnerable situation to be in in educational leadership and in international educational leadership you've got parents you've got the board you've got teachers you've got your colleagues they're all looking to you to do things to be someone to to act in a certain way to have the answers to this to to stop something from happening for to um, be a champion to their cause, et cetera, et cetera. So you have to be so much to so many different people and you can't. So understanding who you are, what, what, you're, what are the things that you're not going to, to be moved or shifted or transgress from, being very clear about that so that you're not swayed in difficult times um, and to be true to yourself to, to understand yourself and understand your, your limitations too. And to say, you know what, John, I really don't know how to do this. Can you help me? Or, you know, um, Jackie, um, you know, I think you might be able to do this a lot better than I. Would you like to take this on? Um, I'll support you, I'll help you, but actually I think you were, you are the better person to do this. Or, um, bringing in people, which is the, the great thing about that COVID task team that we worked on, a whole diverse group of people, but who had different skill sets. And working with those different skill sets allows you to be strong, to make good decisions, to, to make the right decision at the right time, um, and be sure that it was the best that you could do at that particular moment, because you actually had the the skills of many more people than yourself yeah. to be yeah. able to make those really tough, tough decisions. And I think a lot of um, leaders that I have seen in the past have tried to do it so much on their own. And it's that vulnerability and that humility that we all need to have in order to say, I need you to help me do the right thing. Can, yeah. you, you, know, can you come with me kind of thing? And I think in the past, and, and especially, and you know, I'm sure I'm going to get it, you know, leadership was very much a male thing. And the kind of the male thing was you, you did not want to show your vulnerability. And I think that in the past, that was often the narrative. I think with a far more multi-diverse group of people in leadership, there's much more appetite to be more open and vulnerable. And I think one thing that, you know, and, and there's this theme that I think is coming up, Patricia, which I'm really resonating with me, is if I think of as new leaders coming up or new leaders engaging in professional opportunities to go into school leadership, this idea of having 
clarity of who you are, what you believe in, kind of the pedagogic moral compass, is really important to make sure you nurture that, you take good care of it, that you grow, that you expose it to many different ideas. Because I keep hearing that that's what you're going to tap into. That's what's going to guide you when you get pushed one way or another. And if you don't have that, you're just going to start swaying a bit with the wind. And, and that's something that really resonates as we're talking here today is this idea for young leaders and leaders is just make sure you really spend the time knowing what do you believe in? What are you about to not do? Or where do you say, sorry, won't go down that road anymore? And that really takes this kind of internal courage and that discipline that you talked about is very likely you don't find that out without giving yourself that time where you're dancing and cooking yeah. and doing those things. And I think to me, that is something that's really resonating. Is that something that you see maybe as one of the components, if you engage in the idea of leadership in schools, women, be it black or Asian or whatever, yeah. do you think that's an important component? It's definitely an important component. And you know, John, we are bombarded by all kinds of literature about leadership that tell us, you know, seven steps, 10 something, three something else, and you know, you've got it. Well, it's, it's not true. It isn't as simple as that. Yeah. And when you just talked about this not being swayed, that's sometimes what young um, and older people are, are, are persuaded by the power of the literature out there, the, the entrepreneurs that are telling you all kinds of things that uh, if you just do it this way, if you just follow this path, you know, you will become this. But the becoming is, a, is quite a slow process. But it also is a process that is, has to involve other people from outside of your domain. So if you are in education, you, you, I feel anyway that I'm a better person because I am nourished by other um, professions and other. And that's why I'm so passionate about international education or education in which diversity is at the core, where dissonance is part of what you, you grapple with, where um, opinions that are, are very different from your own, religious opinions that are different from your own, are those that you can engage with and, and, and be with, walk beside. Um, I can't remember the name of the author, but um, a Palestinian who was talking about how he walked beside his friend, a Jew, through the desert, side by side, and just talked, as you would with like two rivers coursing side by side that suddenly, you know, at some point meet and become one. Because the water is the same. Yeah. It, it's no different. You know, yeah. the one on the left, the one on the right, it's the same water. Yeah. So, and when they come together, when, when that happens, that's magic. That's, that's the magic. And it's the same that that's the magic you get in the classrooms. That's the magic when a student has been grappling with an idea and then slowly you, you see it almost that they come to, under, to that understanding. And so for me, it, it's about, also 
not being swayed, as you talked about earlier on, by things that come your way that tell you that there's an easy route to this, to, to, to leadership or, or becoming. It's not an easy route. It's hard. It's hard work. It's hard. You're going to cry. You're going to fall. You're going to fail. You're going to all of those things. You're going to be harassed. You're going to be um, downtrodden. You're going to be praised. And one of the things that we haven't talked about is that power, you know, that power that you get when you can make a decision and others just have to follow it. Yeah. Be careful. Yeah. It's, it's dangerous. It's yeah, really it dangerous. Very, and unfortunately, we're seeing some of that in the global context that's not turning out so well. But what I really like that you're saying is this idea of the dissonance and allowing different, uh, you know, voices and perspectives coming into that. I don't think we understand as educators how important that is, especially with this whole uh, political division fueled by social media and algorithms. And I think educators that 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 is in the forefront is making kids comfortable hearing things that maybe they're not comfortable with but giving them the tools how to have that perception and empathy and as you say be able to walk with that person so the two rivers come together and i, mm. I just think that's so important yeah. so important patricia i'm mindful of time what did you love about being a leader you know we talked about the challenges you know what were the things that, you know, if you look back, those joyous moments when you were a principal or head of school, and you are currently one today, what, what are the things that just, you know, you just give you that smile and say, yeah, this is why I do this? You know, it's, it's, it's after you've gone, after you've left. Um, you know, Nelson Mandela, and I, I'm no Nelson Mandela, but I've learned a lot from him after he stepped down as president, after he came out of prison, and you look back and you look over your shoulder and you see some of the things that you were grappling with that have become uh, taken on like, oh, this is the way we've always done things. Yeah. Then yeah. you realize, yeah, that, that is something that I was a big part of. I'm not saying that it was because of me, but I was a big part of that. And it continues. And people still feel that way, even after you are no longer there. You know, you talk about legacy, and you can't know what your legacy is until you've left. Yeah. You know, um, you can't say, oh, I want my legacy to be this, because it won't work that way. But there are many schools, you know, every time I go back to a school that I have worked in, or come across people years afterwards, years, years afterwards, um, and who recognize me um, and say, Patricia, do you remember when? And I get this rush, this feeling of joy, sheer joy. You know, I get it. I, you know, I've had someone come up by, I was in the theater at, 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 a, at a, a, a concert and, and, you know, somebody came up to me and says, are you, are you Patricia Angoy? And I said, yes. And they said, do you remember when? And it was just, you know, that conversation just went on for hours afterwards, you know. Um, and those, are, those are the things that bring me joy. 
Yeah, they are so precious. Is and and I think sometimes we have to be careful for finding that gratification in the moment. It's something that takes time, and maybe don't look for it because it will come to you when you don't expect it. And that's what makes it so rich. I think.、Mm. Yeah. yeah, you know, I was in a school.、Um, I won't say which one, but、um, when I when I left the school,、um, I didn't want a, a gift. Yeah, and. But I got one, and it was a garden. And somebody showed me a picture of that garden last week, with lots of little stones around it. It had been put back together, and I thought, "Gosh, you know, it's still there. <laughs>、um, the gift is still there, and other people can enjoy that space.、Yeah. So it's not necessarily a."、Um, <clears throat> You know, a, a, a way of working,、um, a, a particular curriculum that you've introduced,、um, you know, a, a model that you may have created with with other people, but it may be a space, you know, that you have left,、yeah. and that's that's also joyous. Yeah, you know, as、uh, as the little prince says, everything that's essential is invisible to the eye. You know, and I think. So often we have to understand as educators, there's so many things that we impact children that we might never realize、no. it. But、no. if we're blessed, like obviously you have,、uh, they come back and share an anecdote, or somebody three years or twenty years later sends you an email. I think that that's what makes it so rich. Patricia, I can't thank you enough for this wonderful conversation and、uh, kind of going through so much of your rich experience and your learning and.、Uh, Thank you、uh, from the bottom of my heart for being on today and sharing this journey. And I know for a lot of listeners,、uh, always hearing that can be really inspirational. I wish you all the best with your holiday. Thank you, thank you. And I know you will head back to Iswatini here in a few weeks, and、uh, you're on the Southern Hemisphere schedule, so things are a little different. But we wish you well and your school community all the best for the rest of the academic year. Thank you so much, and thanks to International Schools、uh, Podcast for inviting me. It's been an absolute honor, absolute pleasure. I mean, we all like to talk about each other, don't we? <laughs> and, Absolutely.、Um, you know, I. It's really lovely to be able to share with your listeners,、uh, with the listeners, and、um, yeah, I wish you all out there、um, good luck too. Thank you. Thank you very much.